Hi, welcome to After the Crisis with Victoria. On this podcast, we talk about stress, trauma, plain old bad days, and how those events impact the way in which we walk through the world. Everyone needs to be heard, and I am here to listen. Together, we will find realistic, healthy ways to turn our setback into a comeback. If you're a person who has ever endured difficult times, which have left you feeling disconnected from your authentic self, a little bruised, or even a little broken, this podcast is for you. Hi, everybody. This is Victoria English Martin. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of After the Crisis with Victoria. I have a wonderful guest today. I say this a lot, but I love how the universe has our back. And I reached out to Emily Lynn Paulson a few months ago about being a guest on my podcast. And I couldn't believe when she said yes. I felt like I'd landed a big fish. And then we had to reschedule because Emily got the flu. And it turns out a month or two later, we ended up in the same coaching program. So there was a Slack group chat that started. And when I saw her name, you could knock me over with a feather. I thought, okay, this is meant to be. So now I feel like I've not just got a great podcast guest, but a great colleague that I'll be studying with in the next six months to a year. I'll tell you a little bit about Emily. Emily Lynn Paulson is the author of Highlight Real, Finding Honesty and Recovery Beyond the Filtered Life. Emily is an entrepreneur, a certified professional recovery coach in substance abuse and disordered eating, and a member of the long-term recovery community. Emily is formally trained as a chemist and a teacher, and she rose to success in the top tiers of a skincare company, where she gained her voice and a platform for sobriety and healing. Since January 2nd, 2017, Emily's been sober, and her recovery path is focused on ruthless honesty, grace, and self-love. She's passionate about connecting women with resources for recovery from trauma, eating disorders, and substance abuse, and believes that sharing our truth with each other is the best resource of all. Emily lives in Seattle with her husband and their five children. <laughs> you make me look like an amateur with four, Emily. So oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. And it's nice to finally connect. I'm so happy you're here and excited yeah. to share your story with our listeners. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad we could finally make this work. Me too. So I wrote to you before the episode and I talked a little bit about some things that came to mind. And if you've listened to any of my podcasts before, I talk a lot about crisis, life after the crisis. And when I read your book, Highlight Reel, I think the biggest takeaway from your story that touched me was if you don't deal with your trauma, it will deal with you. And actually reading your book was a catalyst for me to go back into some very deep therapy work back in September. So I thank you for that. You helped me along my own journey and I've done a lot of healing as a result of your book. So I'm grateful for that. But one of the things that I talk about is self-medicating after crises and I call it, you know, what color shirt are you wearing? And during your story, you share that your trauma, your self-medicating, had different color shirts at different times in your life. So could you share a little bit about that? Sure. You know, when I was younger, I guess I didn't really realize I had been through trauma. I mean, when you're a kid, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was just a lot of um, surrounding myself with other people, 
absorbing what other people did, you know, not really having a strong sense of self mm-hmm. and trying to act a lot older than I was. So that kind of became part of the shirt that I wore, I guess you could say, is trying to do things that were more mature than I was ready for. Um, mm-hmm. Drinking, having sex, whatever it was, that was always really the theme of doing things when I wasn't prepared, uh, emotionally, mentally, physically. Mm-hmm. And then there were always repercussions from that and not being able to deal with that. And so then having to wear other shirts to cover for that, you know, mm-hmm. learning that drinking did make me feel a little numb and kind of take away some of those uncomfortable feelings. But again, doing that at such a young age. And then as I got older, a lot of those shirts, you know, a lot of people are wearing those when you're in college and when you're a young adult. A lot of people are binge drinking. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have disordered eating behaviors, even if they don't all look the same. There's always someone on a diet. So you don't look that weird if you're skipping lunch. And so you're able to really blend in with the crowd, you know, no matter what those shirts look like. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I would say throughout my life, it really was, you know, the disordered eating and the alcohol use. And, you know, there was a lot of relationships, always dramatic relationships. I guess they call it uh, love addiction. Yeah. But everything, it all stems from the same place. It all comes from the same place. And it's just how you learn to deal with it. Mm -hmm. What do you call that place? I think it just comes from, again, like my young 12-year-old self having a traumatic experience and not processing it. Mm-hmm. I can see how much so much of my trauma, all of my behaviors throughout my life really stemmed from that one experience. Yes, you were really vulnerable about that experience in your book. And I can imagine that looking back in hindsight, it must all sort of connect after you started doing the work of healing. Yeah, and it's funny because when I started writing... I really thought it would be a story, again, of a mom getting sober. You know, Mm -hmm. here I am, I'm a mom, wine mom, and I get sober, the end. Everything's wonderful. And as I started peeling back the layers and realizing, oh, wow, that was a really disordered behavior. Wow, that was a really disordered behavior. Well, what about when this happened? Well, why did I do that? And having to unpeel all of these layers and it truly, you know, having to go get EMDR and Mm -hmm. going through all these therapies to uncover something that happened when I was 12 years old. And it all really does go back. So I had to go back years and years and years. I really didn't think I would be writing a memoir of my entire life. And and truly, that's where it comes from. Isn't that something? I found that experience to be true as well. I became sober from alcohol, but I was still stuck in patterns of thinking, of patterns of behavior. So I like to say that I was alcohol-free, but not free. And like you said, it wasn't until I was willing to peel back those layers. Who knew there were so many layers, right? You think maybe you can identify that this, you think when you stop a behavior that things are okay. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, goes exactly. back, that goes back to the name of your book, Highlight Real. I love that. You spell real R-E-A-L. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about what your life looked like on the outside. I mean, I really was the person who looked like they had it all together. I had five kids. I had a successful business, this great husband. And while there were people who knew some things that were going on, some people who I knew, knew maybe I you know, had some indiscretions or drank a little too much, really from the outside, it looked like I had it all together. And that's what I was showing people. And mm-hmm. that's why the cover of my book is pictures from my Instagram. Yes. 
you know, when you look closely, you see I'm holding a wine glass or a beer mug or whatever in every picture where it was just kind of, it had weaved its way into my life. Mm -hmm. But again, I was showing people this very pretty picture. And in a way, it was kind of imposter syndrome with myself because (laughs) I was not even meeting this expectation of myself I was putting out there. And, And so it's very conflicting. And like you said, you know, giving up a behavior you know, I knew for a long time, we talk about that, like pre-contemplation, contemplation contemplation, of giving up something. I knew that it was affecting me, but I thought, you know, I would give it up for a month and think, okay, I've got control of it. Mm -hmm. And and this is a very common story with people with, you know, substance use, right? Yeah, it's Lent. (laughs) Right. Oh yeah. I'll give it up for 22 months. Oh wow. If I can give it up for that long, if I can give it up for nine months at a time, Mm -hmm. five times, clearly I don't have a problem. Right. And so always just rationalizing things away. And again, like with the disordered eating, thinking, well, it's just, I'm just cutting this out. I'm just cutting that out. I'm just doing this. I'm just doing that. And it can be a very slippery slope. And it's confusing to even know if it's an issue, if you're not ready to confront it. Absolutely. And that leads us to, I have a couple of questions around that, but you talk about, it's hard to identify if it's an issue. We are steeped in the mommy wine culture. I like to say I spearheaded that movement. (laughs) (laughs) If you look up mommy wagon culture, there's a picture of me, the glass of wine. Right. But tell me more about that because you're presenting this life online and in the way that you walk through your daily life as a mom, as a businesswoman, as this woman who has it all together. And underneath you're starting to, from what I hear you saying, sort of have those more and more moments of this isn't matching up. Mm -hmm. What did that feel like? Do you remember a pivotal moment where you really started to say, you know, when you go to post that picture on Instagram and say, I'm an imposter. This is not me. I think there were many times that that came up, but then I'd always rationalize it away. Like, that. oh, that's a silly idea. I don't have a problem. Mm-hmm. Look at everyone else. I might wake up in the morning hungover. And this was very common for me to wake up after being hungover, not remembering what I had said, done, posted, whatever, and thinking, I cannot do this anymore. And then during the day, I would plan, okay, I'm not going to drink tonight. I'm not going to drink this weekend. And then I'd go to whatever, the parents club meeting where they have wine, or I'd go to anywhere, everywhere where they have wine and think, I'll just have one. It's okay. I'll just have one. And then once I had one, all bets were off. And so I think I had good intentions. Mm -hmm. I think everybody has good intentions, but I was already so deeply addicted that Mm -hmm. it's hard to rationalize something when everyone else is doing it. Absolutely. I tell the story. I've told you I have four children and they're not all grouped together like yours. But for example, when I had my first three children in the 90s, there was no such thing as a mommy wine culture, at least not where I was Mm -hmm. hanging out. We'd go to the park and we'd play with our kids. We'd go to soccer and the kids would play. There was no alcohol involved. Fast forward to when I had Aubrey in 2008, and all of a sudden, wine is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this is my jam. This works out great for me (laughs) because it was everywhere. So it was acceptable. And that just put off the inevitable moment where I realized that it had infiltrated every part of my life and was indeed a serious problem I needed to deal with, which I've never actually said out loud on this podcast, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I'm amongst friends. And as a recovery coach, you are a recovery coach in substance abuse and disordered eating. So tell me a little bit about as a woman in this alcohol saturated society, where is one to look to really see if there's a problem aside from 
those Google searches we do in the middle of the night, am I an alcoholic? What are some of the markers that you would identify? I talked to the friends around me Mm -hmm. and I did have one friend who suggested, you know, she's like, if you're concerned, why don't you go to an AA meeting sometime? And it was very nonchalant, but like, hey, if you're worried, you know, I'm worried for you. And, and maybe you should check this out. And I realized the more that I asked, the more that other people really were not as okay with this culture as we all thought we were. Uh-huh. We were at an indoor play area that's here in Seattle. And, you know, they serve tons of booze. And we were there for a birthday party at like 10am. And everyone's drinking. And, you know, I was very newly sober at that point. But Someone said to me, like, I didn't get a drink because you're here and I felt guilty, to be honest with you. She just put it out there. She's like, but this really has always made me uncomfortable, things like this, Mm. that you're bringing your kids to play and you're getting inebriated while they're playing and then you got to drive home. And so I do think that more people are uncomfortable with it, but because it's out there, we just kind of participate because it's what everyone's doing. Right. That makes sense. And then if you stop, if you stop participating in that behavior, there's a lot of shame attached to it. Oh, she's an alcoholic mom. She can't drink. And that's a very big hurdle for a lot of us to overcome because Mm -hmm. we love our children. We love our families. We put them first, but alcohol is an addictive substance. If Mm -hmm. you ingest it enough times, (laughs) you'll get hooked. And I feel like there's a chasm between women being able to make that leap to understand that it's not a stigma. There's no shame attached to it. It's actually very empowering to take the scales from your eyes and see the way Mm -hmm. that the world is operating. It's true. And I I think that's where we have to like take our power back a little bit. And I mean, it's easy for me to say as someone who's been sober three and a half years now (laughs) that obviously I don't drink when I go out, but that it's okay to go to the play area that serves alcohol at Mm -hmm. nine or 10 AM and say, I'll just have orange juice or all the sparkling water or, you know, no, I don't want a mimosa when I'm with my kids. Right. And that you might find that other people are like, yeah, me too. Or, you know, gosh, I've got a big day too. This doesn't agree with me or this isn't going to make my day better or this isn't part of my plan. You know, just to think of themselves and not put it in this black and white alcoholic or non-alcoholic box. Like that's really not the point, right? Love that. I love that. So just ask yourself, is this the best choice that I could be making right now? Mm -hmm. The same way, you know, if you have a choice, if you're going to work out, should you eat a donut or a clean protein shake? Right. (laughs) What's going to be the best outcome for my workout and my day? So, right. right, I like that. So if you can sort of take away the stigma and just ask yourself that simple question. Right. I think one of the big problems is that people don't necessarily know how bad alcohol is for you. And that's also marketing and how good advertisers are. And, um, you know, kudos to them for for making us think it's a health food. But, you know, it isn't this like health elixir that we think it is. It's Mm -hmm. not going to give us antioxidants. It doesn't help anything. If you want to partake, great. But I think we're just really void of the reality of it. Mm -hmm. And like you said, again, it is addictive. And you will get addicted at some point. Mm-hmm. So you should just know it's it's a risk, but you know, it's just informed consent. That's a great way to put it. Informed yeah. consent. Yeah. The marketers, they're brilliant. I'm sure you're familiar with Holly Whitaker and how she discovered oh, yeah. the marketing campaign of cigarettes back yes. in the day. And they're pretty much emulating that same formula with alcohol and targeting women and young adults. It does give me hope 
a little bit though to think that maybe if that was turned around, maybe eventually, you know, this this whole the wheels in motion with big alcohol will be turned around too. I think so too. And women like us speaking out and sharing our story, you were incredibly vulnerable with your story. I, I loved it. And if you and I passed each other on the street, we'd think we were, you know, pretty much similar moms, busy yeah. moms, working moms. So I commend you for your bravery and authenticity. We talked about moms and the stigma attached to drinking. And you talked in your book about your disordered eating, the love addiction, the drinking. Did you find, I'd like to talk about a couple of things, was one harder to accept than the other? And where does shame tie into all of those things? Yeah, that's a real, I mean, that's a lot of, lot of material yes, there. But that's another book. <laughs> I think, you know, for me, my eating disorder was the first thing that was confronted. Okay. And so it was the first thing that was noticed. Because again, I was in college and so everyone was getting drunk all the time. It, it wasn't, yeah, I drank a lot and I did stupid things when I drank. So did a lot of other people. Everybody else did. Right. And so the, the thing that was noticeable for me was the fact that, you know, I had an eating disorder. And so that's really what brought me into treatment and getting help. So that was the first thing I got help for. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't a cure for me. It was, it was a starting point, but I think the alcohol thing for me for sure was the hardest thing to confront as a problem again because it was so culturally acceptable it was acceptable i mean i wasn't even 21 at that point and it was still acceptable and then when i became 21 it was totally acceptable and then when i was in yeah it's expected yeah so so that was the hardest thing for me to wrap my brain around and i think the love addiction thing really played into without the alcohol I didn't have trouble with relationships. And so I think that was really like a secondary, <laughs> secondary affliction, mm-hmm. you know, because when I stopped drinking, lo and behold, all of those problems really went away. Yes. So it really went right alongside me, you know, my drinking. So the drinking for me for sure was the hardest thing to confront. And then as far as shame goes, I think the shame associated with infidelity was mm. was the hardest thing because it involves other people. And so it's not one of those things where you can say this, you know, drinking, me taking the drink. Okay. You can take out all those external factors and mom wine culture and advertisers and people pressuring you, you know, Mm -hmm. I choose to take a drink fine, you know, but, but when you talk about, you know, and a relationship, there's other people involved. And so I think the shame there you know, that was harder for me to get over, I think, than anything. I can understand that. Yes, because alcohol is a substance. It is Mm -hmm. physically addictive. And I would imagine that the infidelity made you look more at who am I? What are my core values? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And then, you know, alcohol, if you're able to quit, you know, you put it away. You don't go to the bar. You don't have it in your house. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with relationships, you still have to have a relationship (laughs) with your husband and you still live in the same community and you have your children and everybody who's been involved in it. So you have to go on. And I guess the same can be said for an eating disorder too, which I think that's the hard part of, of recovering from an eating disorder is that you still have to eat. And, and so even That's when your path is disordered, you know, so, so there, I think there are things, you know, there's lots of different paths of recovery and different shame involved. And for me, you know, that's, that's been my path. Mm-hmm. So as a woman who presented as having it all, and then just told the whole story really mm-hmm. got 
raw and vulnerable. One of the most vulnerable books I've ever read. What is it like now to walk through your day knowing that you are authentic? This is the real me. Take it or leave it. You know what? It's the most freeing feeling, to be honest with you, in a sense that I didn't realize how much work it was to constantly be worried about what people were going to find out mm-hmm. and to not have any secrets. Like here, here's my email password. I don't care. Like, what are you going to find out? Yes. You know, to know that there's nothing, not that anyone could ever use against me, but, mm-hmm. but just there, there's nothing that I haven't put out there. There's nothing, you know, I had so many secrets and so much shame and I was hiding so many things that once they're out on paper and they're out for people to read, whether they read it or not, it's, it's out of my brain, it's out of my body, and it, is, it has no power anymore. Yeah. That's like been the most powerful thing. Secrets, I think, are where shame really breeds. And, oh, it's a and petri dish. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it absolutely is. And even little things like being worried about, you know, my husband seeing my text messages or, or little things that just would eat away or gosh, did, did I say something last night that I don't remember? Or I, I don't remember this conversation or is she mad at me? All these things that I, I don't have to deal with those things anymore. It's such a weight off mentally, physically, emotionally yes. in every way, you know? And so when people say, and you know, thank you for saying that, like I, you know, Oh, it's vulnerable. Your book's wonderful. And all of that. I, I say like, it's been such a gift to me to mm-hmm. have it out there. And even if people thought the book sucked, like it would still be such a right. such like a gift to me to just have it out there. That makes a lot of sense. And I hope whoever's listening that you'll push replay on that part because I think digging down and being, sometimes it's out of desperation and sometimes it's out of just knowing that you need to heal. Somewhere in your soul, you know that you need to heal some things. And being able to dive in, do the work, and become vulnerable can seem so daunting and scary. But unless you've been there, which now I have been, to experience the freedom on the other side of it is a hundred times worth whatever I have to go through to get there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And if anything, you know, what's paid it forward, I guess, for me Mm -hmm. is me going to my first AA meeting was because one person was brave enough to tell me she was an AA. Yes. You know, that is the only reason I went to get help. And so when I hear women who say, oh my gosh, I was sexually assaulted too, or I had this happen too, I had this happen too. Oh my gosh, that sounds just like me. And I think it's so comforting for other women to read that. And and that's really what I wanted because I like devoured every memoir when I first got sober, all the quit lit, like I read all of it. And so I just wanted to have another story out there that was mine for someone like me to read. You know, so someone like me could find that and say, I'm not crazy or I am crazy and we're all crazy (laughs) or (laughs) that it's okay. and, And this is, there's a path I can take and she turned out all right. And it just meant so much to me to have something out there. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. And there are more and more of us coming out and whatever our crisis has been, whatever our trauma was, it's well known because you can't hide cancer, (laughs) but you know, I, I advocate for women to educate them about the risks of, you know, what to look for and how to advocate for themselves in the medical community and things like that. The more that those of us who have gone through the fire, and my Aunt Paula says, you know, we come back with buckets 
for the mm-hmm. buckets of water for those still in it. The more of us that come forward and speak our truth, the more people we can help and the less shame mm-hmm. there will be attached to this. Any of it, any of it. Like I said, yeah. there, you know, whatever color shirt you're wearing, because there's yep. a shame attached to any of it. If it's impacting when you open your eyes in the morning, if it's impacting how you feel in your soul, mm-hmm. then there's work to be done around it. Right. Yeah. So aside from all the superpower things you do, you have a TED Talk coming up. I do. I just learned about, can you tell me a little bit about that? That's so exciting. So we can't technically share the topic until it's done, but Uh as you can imagine, it's probably alcohol related. (laughs) So definitely be on the lookout for that. But yeah, it's it's in less than a month now and I got to rehearse. Holy cow. But yeah, I'm excited for that. I'm, I'm very excited. I think Ted's a great platform and you know, yeah. So that's exciting. Congratulations. It. Yeah, it's a, and it's in my um, home state of Montana. So uh-huh. Big very spy. excited about that. That's yeah. awesome. So it just sounds like you were living what appeared to be a big life before you got sober in every way mentally, physically, Mm -hmm. and spiritually. But it sounds now like your life is so much bigger and real and authentic. It is. And the relationships that I have now, especially with my family, Mm -hmm. you know, with my mom and dad, my brother, my kids, my husband, you know, I didn't realize before what I was missing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even have the capacity when I was drinking to have stronger relationships. Mm -hmm. It's not like I could have, oh, I should have spent more time with them. No, I literally could not have as deep of relationships Mm -hmm. without cutting out alcohol out of my life. Yeah, And, you know, as I'm sure you know, like there's relationships that have gone by the wayside, Mm -hmm. but the people who have needed to be with me and who've stuck around and the people who've come into my life because of sobriety and the relationships that I've mended because of sobriety. Yes. All of those friendships, relationships are so much richer and more meaningful than any of the thousands of, you know, yes. connections or acquaintances or right. whatever. Or again, the people on Instagram who I don't even know. Right. It's so much more meaningful. Yeah. And when I say a big life, I think you know what I mean by that. Yeah. That it's it's richer. It yeah, doesn't have yeah it's ironically bigger. smaller, right? It's it's ironic. Smaller. It is smaller, but yeah. it's so much better. It's kind of so like I'd compare it to having a gourmet chocolate truffle versus a huge an Easter bunny, an East, a cheap <laughs> Easter bunny from the corner store, one of those cheap yeah. hollow waxy ones. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's smaller, but it's satisfying. It's it's yeah. it's the real deal. Yeah. That's great. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Well, I guess one thing I'll I share, I haven't shared this yet, but I think since I've become sober, I've really stepped into myself, you know, and my book, obviously, Highlight Real is like, I was kind of figuring out who I am. And through the last three and a half years, really just finding myself. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, two days ago, I had surgery to have my breast implants removed mm. that I've had for 20 years. Oh. And <laughs> so, and part of that was to advocate again, like for my health and just to kind of take back who I am. That's incredible. So anyway, that's just kind of something that I'm putting that out there for the first time that I did this, but that's why I'm laid up in bed looking so horrendous next to you. <laughs> You're looking you, so gorgeous. You look great. You look great. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So it's funny that, again, this is another topic that I had so much shame about. I mean, I had so much shame about my own Mm -hmm. body 
and lots of people have plastic surgery. It's, you know, whatever you want to do, you do, do you do yours. It's fine. But for years, it was just something that, you know, I had so much shame about just not feeling good about myself and finally being at the point where I just want to be who I am. And so anyway, it was a big deal, but that's why I'm I'm laid up this weekend. (laughs) That is a big deal. And I'll share something with you. I went through a weird phase last week where I was grieving my breasts because as you know, I had a double mastectomy and I had expanders for a year and then I had reconstruction in late September. And then they did a fat grafting, which it sounds like, oh, cool. You got free liposuction. No, they just take some some fat and they put it around the implant to help vascularity of the tissue because after a mastectomy, you're at a high risk for necrosis, which Mm -hmm. (laughs) nobody wants and cellulitis. So all the surgeries are done now. Things have kind of settled in and I'm just looking in the mirror saying, well, this is me now. This is what I needed to do to stay alive. And this is my body now. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I had a day where I was just... I just sort of had to process that like, okay, this is the reality of it. And the old me, I don't know how I would have dealt with it. Well, I I certainly would have drank, but (laughs) but, but but I, I would, I would have done anything to avoid feeling the really feeling what that was to look at my body and to mourn the loss of my breasts. And now these Mm -hmm. altered spaces on my body. And I just had to sit with that for a little while. And it's so interesting when you talk about being authentic and being free that I can look at myself and say, you know what? It's okay. I love myself the way I am. I could have never said that before. No, same. So uh, it's such a better, it's such a better place to be scars and all. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> well, um, real quick before we end, tell me a little bit about your coaching. For sure. So I meet with women who really are at that point where they're like, I don't know if this is a problem. They're sober curious, or maybe they have been to meetings and think they have a pretty good handle on it, but just want accountability. And also women who you know, are recovered from an eating disorder where they're out of therapy, but they just want mm-hmm. maybe an accountability partner. Um So we connect for, you know, virtual hour long sessions twice a month. We have text communication, email in between, and it's really positive solution focused, strength based coaching. So it's not we don't go back in the past. It's not therapy. It's really about moving forward, making goals. And, you know, the goal is to eventually not have the coaching anymore. Right. You know, this isn't something I want to plan on. I, you know, I don't want people to continue to pay me for the rest of my life. I want them to eventually, you know, have the skills and, and you know, develop goals so they can kind of move forward on their own. And I have free consultations for people who think that, you know, they yeah. might be a good fit and we just kind of go from there. That's great. And, and I would imagine that instead of being attached to shame, that something like that would be a very empowering thing for a woman, especially a woman who has children or a career and things that she identifies herself by. And then she has this other activity she does. So I would think that that is really focused on positivity and being empowered. Absolutely. And I know for me, you know, when I like go to the gym, I don't know what the heck to do. And I need somebody like I need the personal trainer. And so I understand that in other parts of your life, you need that too. So that's what I try to be for people. Yeah, I like to say I don't pretend to know what I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't need someone to teach me how to eat, but I certainly need people to teach me how to do lots of other things. So I get it. Yeah, Yeah. that's awesome. Well, tell me where our guests can find you 
and tell me where they can find your book. Yeah. So my website's emilylynnpaulson.com. And I'm on Instagram at Highlight Real Recovery, and that's R-E-A-L. And you can find my book in bookstores or on Amazon. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thanks for joining me here today. And I'm so grateful that the universe brought us together in the first place, but also that we get to go on this exciting journey with this Naked Mind Institute. A little shout out to our coaches. And I hope our listeners will enjoy this episode and reach out to Emily with any questions. Like she said, she has a free consultation. So if you are in that gray area where you're wondering if alcohol or your food choices are serving you in the right way, reach out to Emily. Emily, and get real. Thanks for listening to After the Crisis with Victoria. For more about me, how I can serve your needs, and links to our special guests, please subscribe to this podcast and visit victoriaenglishmartin.com. Also, come on over to our free Facebook group and join our community, After the Crisis with Victoria. I'm offering access to fun, healthy, and thought-provoking content. Additionally, you'll find exclusive programs, workshops, and one-on-one coaching. Until next time, count your blessings, not your burdens. And remember, there is life after the crisis.